come in the service as well, Stories of Grace, which is kind of an open mic time to talk about God's goodness in, in your life. So this message will be a little briefer than, than normal so that we make space for that and this meeting that we have afterwards too. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's the final uh, entry for Paul in the book we've been going through for, for a while now. And, and fitting as we talk about new beginnings. And, and Paul's kind of giving what we're calling his parting words to the Corinthian church here too and giving some guidance on things that matter most to him. So here's what God's word says in 1 Corinthians 16. Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with their gifts to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Okay. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Uh, perhaps... I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want, I'm going to do this, it's easier. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now, about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, curse be on him. Come, O Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, as a point of application, we're thinking about greeting time, including a holy kiss. <laughs> we don't know what that means exactly in our context. So let's look at this uh, a little bit and talk about the parting words that Paul has for this church in Corinth. And really, he's talking about guidance on money, plans, and relationships. Now, commencement, as you may know, actually means something that's new. We have commencements, commencement services all over for graduates. 
And it's, it's signaling something that's been done, but it's more than that looking for what is ahead, something that's new. And usually they look back and talk about accomplishments, uh, appropriately so, and then anticipate what's next. And for many people, of course, it may be uh, more education. Not everybody goes in that direction. Uh, but just a, a couple of thoughts on that uh, reading, just very, very briefly, some, some of the words of a commencement address offered by Dave Barry, who was one of my father's favorite uh, authors for the Miami Herald, just to give you a glimpse of his insights to graduates heading off to college. This is what he says, just briefly. College is basically a bunch of rooms where you sit for roughly 2,000 hours and try to memorize things. The 2,000 hours are spread out over four years. You spend the rest of the time sleeping and trying to get dates. Basically, you learn two kinds of things in college. Number one, things you will need to know in later life, two hours. And number two, things you will not need to know in later life, 1,998 hours. These are the things you learn in classes whose names end in ology, osophy, history, ix, and so on. The idea is you memorize these things and write them down in little exam books, then forget them. If you fail to forget them, you become a professor and have to stay in college for the rest of your life. It's very difficult to forget everything. For example, when I was in college, I had to memorize, don't ask me why, the names of three metaphysical poets other than John Donne. I've managed to forget one of them, but I still remember that the other two were named Vaughn and Crashaw. Sometimes when I'm trying to remember something important, like whether my wife told me to get tuna packed in oil or tuna <laughs> packed in water, Vaughn and Crashaw just pop into my mind right there in the supermarket. It's a terrible waste of brain cells. <laughs> now, what I want to suggest to you is that when Paul offers parting words, it's not a terrible waste of brain cells. God's word is for us and for our benefit and for our good. And so really kind of thinking a little bit about the end of this journey through Corinthians and the start for the people who receive this of their life ahead, and the same thing for uh, ben and Silas and Abby as well, and all of us as we bring something to an end and begin something new, whether it's that time of life or even just summer where things change. There are new things ahead of us. So Paul's parting words to this church as well as for us. Give guidance in a few different areas. And, and the first one that he seems to, uh, to address with them too is guidance on money. He talks about this collection for God's people here, too. And basically, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church and to those who are starting new journeys that you ought to give intentionally and generously. He talks about the collection for God's people, says, do what I've told other churches to do. And he says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. So Paul is saying, look, I love the practicality of the Bible. It talks so much about real life. And money is an important part of life. You know, we're always thinking about, how do I get my more income? What do I do with the income that I have? And Paul says, if you're calling yourself a follower of Christ, uh, money also, what you do with it matters. And Paul says, think about how intentionally you're going to set some money aside for the work that God is doing. And he's doing that here through the churches 
that have begun. So be intentional about that. Set aside the money in keeping with your income. So you, as he's assuming that you're going to be working, you're going to be making some money in keeping with that income, set some money aside. And we don't think that the Old Testament tithe is still in force, but it was 10% off the top of your income that you set aside for the purposes of God. In, in fact, some would suggest that that's a good starting point. That was the Old Testament in the New Testament era when God's grace and abundance is even more. Perhaps 10% is a good beginning target, for, even for forgiving. Now, if you're not accustomed to doing this, that's going to sound like a whole bunch. And sometimes there are some opportunities to grow in that. And I want to suggest it is an opportunity for all of us to begin growing. Now, Paul doesn't stop here. He writes another letter. Some people think a couple more letters to the Corinthian church. It's interesting because he says next he's going through Macedonia. And if you actually, if you have, have a, a Bible, just flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Just to look at a couple of verses there, starting in verse 2, Paul says, out of the most severe trial, and he's talking about the Macedonian churches, where he's going to go. So this is another letter to the Corinthian church later. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. These churches in Macedonia are extremely poor. They, they have almost nothing to give. And, and, and more so, they're facing tremendous trials. They're, they're barely able to provide food. And they're going through intense suffering. And yet, that is the opportunity for them in the midst of where they have very little to operate with joy by giving. So Paul uses the example of people who have almost nothing for those who have quite a bit to say, you want to know what real giving looks like? Look at these people have almost nothing. Because their attachment isn't to the stuff they have, but to the God who's given it to them. And if they see others in need, they're quick to give. Uh, he goes on to, to talk more about this. In verse 3, I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded us with the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. And Paul, it's almost like Paul is saying, stop giving money. You're giving too much. And they're saying, but we want to give. We want the privilege of sharing what we have with those who don't have. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. And Paul says, look in verse 7, just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. And when Paul tells the church here, do this, you know, now about collection, he says, look, there are other people who are doing this, that we're not asking you to do something that others aren't already doing. And in fact, if you really understand the heart of giving, it's a grace. It's something, because you begin to see that anything you have actually comes from God. All of it. You're just simply stewarding it. And one of, the, one of the opportunities, one of the measuring sticks, perhaps, for really understanding, if you grasp that grace of God, comes from your pocketbook. Because then you're really trusting that he will provide. And this isn't something that he hasn't done himself. Now look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And the good news, the gospel says that Christ himself became poor on your behalf. And out of that, this is a response of the generosity God has shown you in Christ. This is just a small thing. It feels so big for us. But if God has given you lavishly his grace, then this is a reflexive response to give. It's not done out of compulsion. Then it becomes a joy, or at least we can get closer in that journey. That's why he calls this, great, this giving a grace of giving. So uh, let me just suggest at the end here, a parting word, he says, look, give intentionally and give generously. You know, if you're going off to college or even just getting a vocational job or something for, for the graduates, eventually you may have tremendous debt. I get that. You're going to start working to pay that off. Uh, but one thing that the gospel says is give generously. Give intentionally and start doing that now. It can be very difficult to do later in life. Believe it or not, you start getting a paycheck or something and it's like, wow, it's my money. I'm no longer asking my parents for it all the time. You build and cultivate these habits in here too. And as you give, you're unlocking the grace of God in your life more and more. Second thing from this text is about plans. And Paul basically says, look, there's your money, but then you also have plans. And he says effectively, make plans, but be flexible enough to follow God's lead. Whether you're a graduate or just uh, a parent or an employee or whatever the case may be, I'm guessing right now you're thinking about what's next in life. You're making plans. What are you going to do for the summer? What are you going to do for a job? Uh, what about the kids? What, who, you're making plans. And Paul says here too, he takes a look at this and he says, go ahead, make them. But you know what? They may not go according to your plan. And that's okay if you're following God's lead. He says that pretty clearly, for example, in verse, verse 7. I, I do not want to see you now and only make a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you. He's planning on that, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work is opened up to me. So he says, I've got these plans, but I know they could shift. And that, I think for graduates, but for all of us, is a pretty good way to go through life. To say, look, I'm, I, here, I'm taking a look at who I am, how God's created me, the desires of my heart. I'm going to pursue those. And then I realize they could shift along the way. You're being, a, you're being aware of and sensitive to the way God's spirit is leading and guiding and directing. Things don't always go according to plan. I had the chance to give a commencement address at a school where I taught for the past decade. It was my last year teaching there. And my, my, my challenge to, to those who are graduating was effectively around this. And what I would say is an anchor verse back in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. It's one you probably know if you grew up in the church and didn't even memorize catechism, question and answer too. You know, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all of your ways, and he will make your path straight. So here's a great recipe for life. I'm going to trust in God with everything I have. I'm not going to try to lean all, I gather information, sure, but at the end of the day, I can't, I don't know everything. I have a limited capacity of knowledge. 
I only know so much. And it's very, very small amount. And the longer in life you go, the more you realize what you don't know. That's called wisdom, strangely enough. The more you accumulate knowledge, the more you don't know what you don't know. You know? That's why kids think they know everything. Because they know, don't know how much they don't know. And as you go on, you think, I know so little. Is there one maybe who knows everything? According to the Bible, that's a big yes. The God who created everything, he knows everything. So why not trust in him? And these ways that he moves may be mysterious, but you see there's some sort of a surrender position that leads to freedom when you say, all right, I thought I you were going this direction, you've redirected me, that's okay. I'm going to follow your leading. And, and what that looks like is worked out, I think, in community. This is why we need each other. How do I understand this? What do I do? We'll gather people around, brothers and sisters who are following God's lead along with you. And that's really the final point as well. Because he talks about his plans, but then he uses this language, if, if you see, of relationship. And the, the final point really is prioritize and cultivate your relationships. Do it with God and do it with others. I mean, look at verse 13. Uh, which I think I, I, I put on the wrong slide there too, but be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. When he talks about that, he's talking about the, the posture of faith before God and doing what's right in his eyes. And the motive, look back at 1 Corinthians 13, is love expressed first toward God and then for others. So one of the things that matters is cultivating your relationships, building them, prioritizing them, not only with God, but with others as well. And there's so much language here of people, you know, Stephanus, and submitting as those who are joining in the work and laboring in it. And he mentions people by name, Fortunatus and Achaicus. Aquila, Priscilla. And then he talks about these churches. And he uses the family language that we've seen from the beginning, brothers and sisters. These are, these are your brothers and sisters in the journey along with you. And one of the greatest fears probably for a parent who has seen a kid grow up in maybe a, hopefully a healthy church community is when they head off that they won't find that again. And I think that's really important to go find a good, good family of people who are walking alongside you, especially during the formative years that you're facing as well. But we all need that. This is a new start for all of us. We're all invited into, because really this is primary a letter to a church, to a group of people where he's saying, make sure you continue to prioritize and cultivate the relationships that God has given you. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, be with you, my love, to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, look, we've called this entire series The Beautiful, Messy Bride of Christ. Because we're beautiful. In, in God's eyes, we are saints. If we belong to Christ, then we are right with God, and we're brothers and sisters grafted into the family of God. But families are messy, extremely messy. The, 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 the distinguishing factor for us if we're walking with Christ is what do we do with that mess? How, what, what do we do with it? We can't, can't pretend it doesn't exist. We can't behave in the same way that somebody who doesn't know Christ is. Our motive is love. And so there's a good check for us along the way as we continue to walk as brothers and sisters about doing it in a way that 
honors each other and honors God as well. So just, that's a very brief word. I'm usually much more long-winded, but I also want time for stories of grace. And so with the graduates, I say, look, the, the money that you have, you use it generously and, and intentionally. And the plans that you make, go for it. You know, a lot of people do switch their degrees along the way if you're going off to college. You're still trying to figure out who you are. Some of us are 40, 50, 60 still trying to figure it out. It's a lifelong journey. And this is why you gather people around you, brothers and sisters, to go through it together. That's the wonderful opportunity. So prioritize and cultivate those relationships wherever you happen to go in the next phases of life. Now, just to close with going back to the beginning in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul says, Christ sent me to preach the gospel. That's why he went originally. That's why he did all this stuff. He wanted people to know the gospel. For him, that's the power of God to transform life. If you feel some, today like I have no hope, I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing, I'm 80 years old and I still don't know how to manage my money, make plans, or build relationships, then the gospel is for you because it never stops applying to you. That's what Paul says. There is power in the gospel. And last week I referred to Tim Keller, who was very formative in a lot of people's lives just in, in this, this era, not only in the United States, but really kind of globally, talking about what the gospel is. And so I wanted to kind of, I'm going to end if we get it right here. I know, I know it's, they do a great job back there with a clip. Just a very brief thing where Tim Keller is articulating what the gospel is, because that's the summary of the entire Corinthian book. And I want to make sure you feel like you've heard it very, very clearly. And one of the reasons why he, uh, a lot of people are sad, you know, is because he did a great job of articulating it. Um, so just a, a brief summary from him on, on the gospel um, and what it, what it means for us. We're not saved by what we do, but by what God has done, completely and wholly and fully by what God has done. And we do not contribute to salvation at all. How could that be? The answer is, when Jesus Christ came, he came to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should die. He lived the life, a perfect life, the only human being who ever lived a perfect life, and therefore earned God's blessing. But then at the end of his life, he went to the cross and took the curse that we deserve. He earned the blessing of a fully obedient human being, but then he took the curse and punishment of imperfect, disobedient human beings, which means that when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in him, all of your sins and what you deserve fall on him, but then all of his blessing, what he deserves, comes to you. And God treats you as if you've done everything that Jesus Christ has done. That's radical. Now, because we have this complete salvation, complete gift, all accomplished by Him, we contribute nothing to it, and now we have received this. There's a freedom. First of all, we're free from any sense of condemnation. Romans 8, verse 1. Now there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do not fear ever coming into condemnation from God. 
And now we're also free, not just from condemnation, but from, you might say, compulsion. That is, we now want to obey God. We want to please Him. We no longer are obeying the law of God out of a sense of just a sense of duty or a sense of being forced or compelled. Instead, we want to please the one who did this for us. We want to resemble the one who did this for us. Just a little uh, sense of kind of who he was, and written some great books, and commend them to you. And it's a huge, huge loss. Uh, but God's kingdom goes on, and uh, it's a new start, uh, a new time. And you know, I'm not Tim Keller. You're not Tim Keller. Uh, I haven't written any books. Don't think I ever will. But I want to be a humble servant to the people God has brought here. To us, and that's what Paul invested in. Those who went behind and said, "Cultivate, you know, new churches, the family of God." And you're part of that family. If you understand what he just said, you're part of the family of God. If you're not trusting in yourself, you're trusting only in what Christ did. That's what it means to walk with with God. That's what it means to become a follower of Christ. And that's something that Paul wanted to make sure everybody knew. And I hope we're clear in making it. Uh, available to you as well is to say yes to God in that sort of way. Father, thank you for this journey through Corinthians. Some of the texts were challenging and difficult, but we believe this is your word that applies to us even today. We pray that we have a deeper understanding and insight into the riches of God. We'll never explore them completely, but we thank you for the opportunity to learn just a little bit more we do look forward to what's next, to new starts. May this be a commencement for us. Maybe if we've never really understood the gospel today, we get a sense of saying, yes, I get it and I'm in. I want that. May this be the new start for somebody today. And Father, for new starts for our graduates or even just a summer or new seasons of life, these basics of trusting in God along the way are ones we want to hold on to. Show us where maybe we're not doing that. Perhaps shake us a little bit, but not, not so much that we lose sight of the fact that Christ is our sure foundation, that he is a mighty fortress. He is the one that was written about in the Psalms, this mighty fortress is our God, and he is in the person of Christ. That's foolishness to some, but may it be for us the power of God as we live and walk and have our being in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.